scripture reading. Actually, let me introduce Beth before I read through our scripture today. We have the, the privilege of sitting under the instruction of Beth Lord, who's a longtime member of our congregation. Um, Beth and her husband, Tim, are missionaries. They serve with a seminary in Africa, training pastors and church leaders and missionaries. And, and we are delighted to have Beth with us. I'll, I'll read our scripture as she comes. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Right down there. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm Beth, like he said, and um, as he said, Tim and I work with Africa's Hope. My specific uh, role is with Pan-Africa Theological Seminary, as he mentioned, the doctoral level training institution in Africa, and it's a tremendous privilege. I work as the registrar and um, also the editor, senior editor for the dissertations. So I kind of get to help run things, and I get to help uh, read all the uh, final dissertations. And really, I get to serve some of the most amazing and inspirational people that you could ever hope to meet. I sort of wish I had some of our students here today to meet you. Um, they're amazing. And it's just a tremendous, tremendous privilege to serve uh, paths. One other little tidbit of trivia about me that you may not know is that actually my connection with Africa goes back farther than that because um, I actually grew up in Nigeria. Um, I'm American, um, but grew up in Nigeria because guess what? My parents worked in Bible schools over there. Um, so I guess I come by it honestly. <laughs> My mom's actually here today. Um, so yeah, so if you have any burning questions about stuff like boarding school, um, eating rats, what it's like to live without electricity, avoiding spitting cobras, um, as I fondly like to call it, my childhood. Um, come see me after the service, and I'll fill you in. Um, but before we turn to God's word, uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which will be our text today, let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that you care enough about us, that you speak to us, Lord God, that you speak to us right now. I ask, Lord, open our hearts to hear from you. Open my mouth, Lord, that I can share the things that you would have me to share. And Lord Jesus, I pray that it will bear fruit in our lives. And I ask this in your holy name. Amen. I have to admit that our scripture for today leaves me with a few questions. How about you? Did anything seem strange to you as Matt was reading? Compared to Luke's account, the conclusion of Matthew's gospel is quite succinct. 
one scene, a mere five verses, and in this tight space, Matthew has crammed so much. He's got a mountaintop setting, worship of the risen Lord, Jesus' proclamation of authority, grounding the command to make disciples of all nations, and finally, the ringing reassurance of his ongoing presence. So far, so good, right? Yet in amongst all of this rich theological goodness is a little phrase that seems so discordant, it's tempting to think somehow that it got in there by mistake. But some doubted. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Something about this just feels wrong to me. First, there's that disconcerting use of the word some. Some doubted, not just one or even two, which I could maybe understand, but some. <laughs> These are the disciples, after all. At least they're the 11 remaining after Judas' death. They're Jesus' inner circle. So why are they doubting? Then there's the placement of the doubt. It's not an initial reaction followed by worship, overcome and transformed by Jesus' presence. No, no. They start first with worshiping. That's what's mentioned first. And then almost as an aside, oh, yeah, but some doubted. And perhaps most strange of all to me is that the doubt remains unresolved. We expect some sort of closure, right? For the doubters to leave and the real disciples to stick around with Jesus, maybe, or for Jesus to correct the doubters and maybe fix them somehow. But no, just a mention, then on with the story. What's going on here? A few have found this phrase so jarring that they've actually looked for ways around it. It's so unpalatable for us to read that the disciples themselves doubted Jesus post-resurrection that they've posited that some doesn't have to really mean some disciples. Okay, so perhaps a few onlookers tagged along with the disciples, hiked up to the mountain with the 11, and those were the people who doubted. Sounds a little better. Um, the only problem with this reading is that there's actually no evidence for it other than our own need to protect the disciples' reputation and to smooth things over, tie up the loose ends. But the angel had told the women at the tomb, go quickly and tell the disciples, verse 7, and then verse 8. They ran to tell the disciples. And while Jesus did then ask the women to go and tell my brothers, it becomes more clear, the focus is made clear in, in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain. The only way to sneak other people in there is to just sort of supply them out of our own imagination or maybe out of our own puzzlement and discomfort. The wording of the phrase, though, is ambiguous, and without getting too far into the grammatical weeds, I do want to note that there's actually more than one legitimate way to translate it. Rather than some doubted, as we read today, it's equally possible to translate it as the NRSV and some others do. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. They worshipped, but they doubted. On this reading, the worshippers and the doubters are not only part of the same group. They might actually be the same people. Either way, the doubters and the worshippers are very closely connected. So what are we to make of all this? In exploring this, it's helpful, I think, to zoom back out uh, to the big picture of the Gospel of Matthew and try to look at what Matthew's trying to get across and how he does it. I'd just like to surface one key theme of Matthew's Gospel here, and that's the theme of the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus announces his ministry back in chapter 4, verse 17. Change your hearts and lives, or repent, as some of your Bibles will say. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of heaven is at the core of the whole story of Matthew's gospel. The way that he uses this phrase is very intentional. Heaven here tells both where the kingdom is from, so it's from above. It's not an earthbound, temporally determined kingdom. But secondly, heaven speaks of the character of the kingdom. Matthew uses this technique to contrast the kingdom of heaven with earthly kingdoms and empire, which are built on military might, oppression, and even conquest. Instead, the power of the heavenly kingdom flows from the very nature of God himself, a God who lifts up the oppressed, who restores the sick and downcast, who reverses our notion of status by saying that a mere child is the greatest in the kingdom. And ultimately, he is a God who takes on human flesh to live with us, suffer for us, die that we might live. This is the king, and this is his heavenly kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus goes on to answer this question in parable after parable, unfolding what the upside-down, counterintuitive kingdom is all about. In fact, it's fair to say, I think, that in using the word kingdom and then going on to describe it like Jesus does, he sort of subverts the entire concept, turning it on its head and replacing it with something completely different. We read that this kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed that then grows to be the biggest plant, 13, 31, and 32. Or it's like yeast that works through dough, chapter 13, verse 33. So we see a kingdom growing organically. It's not the result of some kind of military conquest. It's not the result of human strategies, plans, or programs, as much as we like those. Like a plant, its amazing growth isn't an add-on. It's an outflowing of its intrinsic nature. We also read in chapter 13, verse 44, it's like treasure that had been hidden in a field, found, and everything sold to buy it. Or it's like a priceless pearl that was worth selling everything you had in order to gain it, 1345. So we see a kingdom whose value is beyond measure. But in order to gain it, it seems that you have to actually be willing to part with everything else. So it's not something that you add on to what you've already got. Instead, it's a totally new thing. And if you would like to get this new thing, this amazing new thing, you have to be willing to let everything else go. We also read it's like a net that catches good and bad fish that have to be sorted, 1347 through 50. Or it's like good seed and weeds that are all mixed up and grow together and are sorted at harvest time, 1324 through 30. That just sort of rubs me wrong as a gardener, but Jesus said it, so I guess we'll go with it. So we see a mix of good and evil forces at work, all mixed up together. And it's clear that this is how things are going to continue right up until the end. And yet... It's not really cause for concern because ultimately the evil will be removed. This is the kingdom of heaven that the disciples were to announce in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. This is a kingdom that's not subject to geographical boundaries, but it has come near in Jesus Christ and what he has done in and for humanity and for the world. Matthew's phrase, the good news of the kingdom, in chapter 4, 23 and 9, 35, underscores its redemptive life-giving nature, so that the coming of this upside-down heavenly kingdom is truly life-giving, genuinely good news, and all the world 
needs to hear. This heavenly kingdom is also characterized by its own ethic, which we've heard Pastor Matt share about over the last several weeks. It belongs to the poor in spirit and the persecuted, 5, 3, and 10. It's a kingdom where the generous spirit of the law, not just the letter, is what matters. It's a kingdom where appearances don't count anymore because your father sees what's done in secret, 6, 5. It's a kingdom of prayer and humble reliance on God, 6, 9 through 13. A kingdom of free forgiveness, 6, 14, and mercy, 7, 1 through 5. You can let go of worry in this kingdom because your father is in charge, 625 through 34. And perhaps most importantly, though, whether you're in or out of this kingdom relies a lot less on what you say than what you actually do, 721 through 23. We are to obey these words of Jesus to embody the kingdom of which we, of which we are a part. So if you turn back to chapter 28, then, with this in mind, this idea of kingdom-oriented obedience is key to Jesus' command to the disciples. They're to go and make more disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So obedience, then, is what making disciples is kind of all about. Obedience is how we make visible the character of the kingdom of God how we live into it here and now while we look for its complete and ultimate fulfillment at Christ's return. So obedience is not just the initial response of faith. As we continue the journey of discipleship, we discover that ongoing obedience forms us spiritually such that it continues to make faith possible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it so well when he said, only the obedient believe. I can recognize truth only by obeying. Only the obedient believe. It has been pointed out by many that the main verb in Jesus' command is make disciples, which is all one word, really. My brother likes to put it, discipleize. <laughs> so how do we discipleize? Well, according to Matthew, we do it in three ways. By going, so that's crossing those cultural, language, and socioeconomic barriers, reaching out to people that don't know the good news yet. It's baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we welcome them in the, into the community of the kingdom and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, the heart of kingdom-oriented living. So the message of the heavenly kingdom does require that initial response of repentance or turning away from our earthbound allegiances, away from what we've known before, and turning toward God. And yet repentance has sort of got an ongoing quality to it as well. When we speak of it only as an event, and we talk mostly about conversions or decisions for Christ, I mean, that's good, but we might be selling it a little short. It's kind of like, okay, when we talk about somebody having a baby, yeah, we're talking about that great moment on a Thursday afternoon at 4.05 p.m. when the little one enters the family, and we all rejoice and uh, get on the meal train and... <laughs> help to welcome them into the world. And yet if you talk to some of us moms here, we can tell you quite authoritatively that um, having a baby isn't really just that one event, okay? It takes months and then more months, so many months. <laughs> it's a process. 
you've got sickness in the morning, you've got cravings, you can't touch your toes, on and on and on. And all along, it's not just the baby who's changing, the baby is changing you. <laughs> then the baby's born and you discover that having a baby isn't actually over. Um, it's still changing you. You're up at night, you're feeding, you're burping, you're sort of figuring out that everything takes five times as long as it did pre-baby. Um, and it's still going on, isn't it? Fast forward 20 years later, and guess what? Well, I'll tell you what if you're not there yet. Um, it's still going on. Your life is invested more than ever in that baby who is now an adult. And they're still changing you in many new and beautiful ways. It's an event. It's a process. It changes everything. It's worth everything. And it never stops. It's the same with God's kingdom. You're arrested by God's amazing love. You turn away from everything else and toward God. But that's not the end. Over and over again, as a disciple, there will come those times when you must choose again to turn. You must choose again to enter the kingdom over and over. It changes everything. It's worth everything. And it never stops. So how does this relate to doubt? Well, it turns out, that those moments of doubt are pretty often precisely the place where we have to make those choices. Doubting, I think, is inextricably tangled up with discipleship. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but they doubted. The word used for doubt right there is kind of an interesting one. It appears only one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew 14, 31, where Peter tries to walk out to Jesus on the water. He starts well, but then, I mean, understandably, he sort of panics, you know? What am I even doing out here? You know, I was telling Tim the other day, I thought that um, if it were me, just think about it. Um, what he said was, if it's really you, Jesus, call me to come out to you on the water. And um, there were a lot of ways he could finish that sentence. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone where he did with that. Um, if it were me, it would have been like, hey, Jesus, if it's you, calm the storm. Okay. Um, or maybe like, tell me how many baskets of leftovers there were a few minutes ago earlier today. Um, but no. Call me to come out to you on the water. So Peter is already showing more faith than I think I would have had. Um, he commits. He commits so hard that he was willing to stake his life on it being Jesus. But yet, naturally enough, when he gets out there on the pitching seas, he sort of has second thoughts. And then he chooses not to keep struggling on his own heroically in some way, but he chooses to cry out to Jesus for help. Jesus reaches down, saves him, and then he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The word doubt here, just like in Matthew 28, isn't the same word used for unbelief or outright opposition, and it's not skepticism either, a kind of snarky, well, I doubt it. Um, it's more of a wavering, a hesitation, kind of being in two minds about something, you know, or at least you think you knew, but then something else happens and you're just not sure anymore. Have you been there? When we lived in Austin, our family volunteered with a guide dog organization. 
raising puppies, giving them their basic training so that they could go on to serve uh, visually impaired people. And when our first puppy, Willie, graduated from advanced training, the school called me up and invited me to go on something called a blindfold walk. Basically, it's a test drive where you can experience firsthand what it's like to partner with a guide dog. So it's super exciting. Of course, I was very proud of Willie, and I was eager to do it right up until the blindfold went on. <laughs> so the blindfold, guys, it's not really a blindfold. They didn't, like, put a bandana on my eyes. They put on this weird goggles that are sort of lined with foam, and, like, no light is getting in. So not only can you not see, there's zero light of any kind, and I immediately found myself becoming disoriented. I lost my balance and almost fell down, and that was all before I started walking. So the instructor handed me the harness, gave me my instructions, and I doubted. I wavered. I was in two minds about this experience. Um, sure, sure, I knew that Willie was a full-grown, highly trained, competent guide dog worth tens of thousands of dollars, yeah, yeah. But when it came to stepping out into the utter darkness and trusting my personal safety to his four paws, all I could think of was the little doofus that tore up our kitchen floor. <laughs> or that teenage dog that one time, no joke, pulled me into traffic in downtown Austin because he wanted to say hi to a dog across the street. So trust my safety to Willie? Yeah, I had some hesitation. Um, to be fair to Willie, though, uh, those doubts were ill-founded. He, he did a great job. But doubts. Back in Matthew 28, the disciples see Jesus, and their first response is worship. This is Jesus. They're Jesus. They recognize him. The crucified one is alive again. He's the victor over death. They're amazed. They fall down in worship. And they doubted. Because life is complicated like that. Look, they had just been traumatized. They were afraid for their lives. And just because they had turned toward the kingdom once, just because they had answered Jesus' call to come and follow, just because they just worshipped, doesn't mean they didn't doubt. It doesn't mean they didn't have to keep turning toward him, to keep facing into those moments of wavering, to keep taking the next step. What's so interesting about this doubt, I think, is that Jesus doesn't make it a problem. Sure, he's corrected the disciples before for their lack of faith, but here, this hesitation, sort of a lack of certainty, he doesn't seem bothered by it, does he? In fact, he doesn't even speak directly to it at all. Instead, look at what he does do. He announces that he has received all authority, not just in heaven, but thank goodness here on earth, because that's where we have to live. On the basis of that authority, the disciples are to go out into all the world, announcing the good news of the heavenly kingdom, inviting people to turn toward life and renewal and to begin their own lifelong journey of discipleship and obedience. And then Jesus concludes with the final reassurance. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. The word there is actually all the days. 
Just like Jesus had all authority in heaven and earth, the disciples are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all the things he commanded. What will make this possible? Jesus will be with us all the days, right up to the very end. There is not one day that we can open our eyes and Jesus won't be with us. The Emmanuel, the God with us, who is announced in Matthew 123, remains with us forever. You know, if you live long enough, sooner or later, you're going to experience doubt. You'll encounter something in the faith, maybe, that you've always accepted before, and suddenly it doesn't quite make sense to you, and you're not sure. You need to work through that. Or tragedy can strike. Or someone will hurt you. Maybe even another Christian will act in a way that absolutely cuts your feet right out from under you. And it makes you question not just them, maybe, but this whole Christianity thing. What's real? What's right? Can I even go on? It's doubting. You're not railing against God, maybe, or rebelling outright, but you find yourself awash in uncertainty, perhaps paralyzed and unable to move forward starting to slip under those waves. And I'm here to tell you that that's normal. Doubts aren't great. <laughs> I don't want to valorize them. But they're part of the journey. New Testament scholar I.P. Ellis points out that this sort of doubt is not unexpected. In fact, he calls it an occupational hazard of discipleship. Discipleship is never a static state, he says, a condition to rest in, but a vocation to be realized with contending forces bidding for one's loyalty and always the danger that one will rest on one's merits and not trust in grace. Grace, that's what it always comes down to, doesn't it? Our resources are so meager, God's are limitless, and he delights to share them with us. So when you find yourself sort of stumbling into that dark place of doubt, just speaking from my own experience here, I would say that the way through that doubt isn't usually more answers. It's more Jesus. Sure, of course, it's important to work through things, and I strongly encourage you to deeply search the scriptures to find out what is true. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, but when it comes right down to it, what you're going to need in order to take that next step in the dark is Jesus' hand grasping yours just like he did for Peter. And practically speaking, I'd say go where you can experience Jesus' presence. Take time to read his words, not just for the information, but as a way to hear his kind and gentle voice, saying that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he's always worked with doubters. Make space in your life for Jesus not only in, inside the church, like we're doing right now together, but out along the path. Maybe if you're like me, that'll be somewhere out in nature. But it might also just be wherever your everyday takes you. You'll find that Jesus can be with you in the commute, in the dishes, all those in-between places that you didn't know that he really cared about. Tell Jesus your doubts. He's neither threatened by them nor worried by them. He'll be there waiting for you, and I invite you, turn toward him once again, and you'll find that he'll be with you 
all the days, even to the end. Amen. Pastor Matt. Thank you, Beth. I want to invite you to stand as we move toward a time of response, as we respond to what we have heard from our scriptures, um, and I trust what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart and to your mind through those scriptures as, as Beth has led us through those. Beth, thank you for, again, the reminder that the presence of Jesus is wherever we happen to find ourselves, whatever place of doubt, whatever place of suffering, whatever difficulty, um, but not just the reminder of the, the closeness of Jesus, but the call to once again orient our lives to his kingdom. And that's what this meal is about. We are open hands, receiving the gift of salvation, receiving the gift that we find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also turning again to his kingdom. That is what this weekly gathering is about. It is always a reorientation to the kingdom of Christ. And we invite you into that today in this meal. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. You can come receive the elements. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive the gift of life. Lord Jesus, we are grateful, as Beth mentioned, that you commune with us, that you speak to us through your scriptures, that you lead us with your ongoing presence. So wherever we happen to find ourselves in this moment, a dark place of doubt, place of unbearable suffering, experiencing deep wounds, struggling with strong feelings of anger, whatever our unique situation happens to be, Lord, remind us of your presence. Turn our hearts to you and your kingdom and give us strength. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join me at the table of our Lord today? Son and Spirit. 
our benediction this morning. May God be at your side, even in valleys of death. May Christ Jesus be the cornerstone of your life, and may the Holy Spirit abide in you and tend you with love and mercy all the days of your life. We go in peace to love and serve you. Amen. Please join us for Common Meal, and have a great week.